Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Martin Gayford is the great contemporary chronicler of post-war British art. He was even painted by Lucian Freud and wrote a wonderful book about the experience. His latest work is Modernists and Mavericks, Bacon, Freud, Hockney and the London Painters. With unique inside knowledge drawn from personal acquaintance, he tells the story of a remarkable quarter of a century in British painting when a hermetically sealed world was opened up to fresh and violent new influences, the Blitz, the Jewish diaspora and the rise and rise of American culture all left a profound mark on the London art scene. Modernists and Mavericks seem certain to become an indispensable guide to the period. I spoke to Martin Gayford in a glass room at Thames and Hudson, which accounts for some of the background bustle you may hear. Martin, could you paint a picture of British painting on the cusp of your study? Where was British painting in 1939? Well, very much in in the outer recesses of the international art world, in the view of anybody in Paris or Berlin or even New York. It was a thoroughly provincial place. That was also the uh, conclusion of one of the informants, witnesses I interviewed for my book, Frank Auerbach, who arrived from school in London as an art student in 1947. And one of his observations from those times is that there was a sort of endemic gentlemanly amateurism. Uh, uh, he, he recalls hearing p- artists, painters in pubs, uh, saying, uh, are you working at, at the moment, old boy? And Frank said, well, you don't hear plumbers talking like that. You know, the, the people, almost everyone had a private income. And his feeling was that they weren't trying quite hard enough to get to a really high point. Looking at it art historically, British painting had a rather odd trajectory. That There were two absolutely great painters operating in London in the first half of the 19th century, Turner and Constable. Then a far more uh, mixed, although... You know, some, some people like the Pre-Raphaelites more than I do, but uh, sort of much more mixed uh, pattern of work. One or two fairly significant figures, such as Sickert, who lived half the time in France, uh, worked half the time in France anyway, but no outside observer just looking at the scene in 1945 would have expected absolutely great paintings to be pr- produced in London. You mention Auerbach, uh, and you quote him in the book saying, it was sexy in a way, this semi-destroyed London. Uh, your story grows out of conflict, and particularly the Blitz. Is it possible to sum up the creative stimulus that the social and physical environment had on the, the painters that you're writing about? Well, I suppose the Blitz, one thing about it is that is that it crammed together the people who were not in the armed services. Quite a lot of the characters in my book, the artists, were either working as artists overseas or um, in the army or in the navy, but those who weren't, for one reason or another, were mainly in Soho and mainly talking to each other. So there was a very uh, intense social scene there. But perhaps the most important effect of the, the bombing artistically was that it gave Francis Bacon, who was a volunteer uh, firefighter at one point in about 1942-43, bad asthma. So he went to the country and 
while he was in the country, he decided, having largely given up, apparently, his effort to become a painter, he'd been trying to be a painter for some years through the 1930s, uh, had, was almost a forgotten man at that stage. And while he was recuperating from this asthma, he decided to have one more go. And in 1944, 1945, 46, he started to produce absolutely great paintings. And suddenly, just more or less single-handedly, the standard of work being produced in London shot up. Was there such a thing as a school of London painting? The school of London as a phrase was first used by R.B. Kittai. He told me in 1994 that what he meant by it was something quite loose, that he just noticed there were a lot of very good artists operating in London, and he thought he, he was talking about something a bit like the School of Paris, where there was Picasso, there was Matisse, there was Miro, but nobody said that they, were, they all shared a style. So in that sense, yes, there was, but actually even the people who uh, knew each other terribly well and drank together and talked every day, such as Freud, Arbach, Bacon, didn't have a common style, let alone a manifesto. In fact, Frank Albach says in the book that when he was starting out, uh, he certainly didn't want to paint like Francis Bacon, and he would th he thought of his uh, friend Lucian Freud's pa uh, painting, which he describes as limning, which I mean, like Elizabethan miniatures, as something to paint against. They were all doing quite different things. I mean, there are all sorts there are all sorts of interconnections, but there wasn't. A movement. Could you talk about the way in which the two big figures in this book, Bacon and Freud, uh, work through the story from the end of the war through to around the start of the 1970s? What, it, what is the thread of their parallel narratives for you? Uh, uh, Bacon and Freud are art historically not unique, but an unusual case of two really major uh, artists who knew each other terribly well. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly where the friendship starts. They met, uh, Lucian uh, asked Graham Sutherland, who was previously thought by everybody who thought they knew about art to be the greatest uh, younger British painter, who's the greatest painter, uh, painter in Britain? And uh, Graham Southern said, well, as a matter of fact, it's somebody you've never heard of called Francis Bacon. So Lucian <laughs> made a mental note of that and went along to see Francis Bacon by and by. And uh, at a certain stage, I think probably not for a few years, because Bacon spent most of the later 40s uh, playing roulette on, on, uh, on the Côte d'Azur. By about 1950, they were very close friends. And according to Lucian, they saw each other pretty well every day maybe more than once for 25 years before they finally fell out. It's an interesting question what influence they had, if any, on each other. And I think probably the, the answer with Bacon, in, in the case of Freud and quite a few people, is that he set a very high standard. Auerbach said to me that, uh, uh, he quotes Nietzsche, that people who disdain the second rate are valuable. He says Francis was exactly like that. He disdained everything. He even disdained his own work. So he set stratus high standards in this slightly amateurish, easygoing London art scene. He was saying nothing but the very, very best is anything, anything like good enough. You've got to aim to do a masterpiece. So that was a different way of thinking. And a very, and 
Bacon must have given set uh, loose an extraordinary example of how to carry out the career of an artist at the highest level. I think there is also a, a sort of loose brushwork which comes into Freud's work in the later 50s, 60s, which he's definitely said talking to Bacon gave him the idea, but it's very far from being an imitation of Bacon's work. As far as uh, Bacon's reactions to Freud are concerned, I, I, my suspicion is he liked Lucian a lot as a personality and never really quite understood or, or, or admired what he was doing. The dramatis personae of British painting post-war includes many painters whose roots were elsewhere, most famously Freud by his grandfather, but also many other predominantly Jewish painters. Is British painting in part a product of anti-Semitism in mainland Europe? There certainly were a number of very important Jewish painters in London from uh, the 1940s, indeed from before. In fact, the, uh, the first major British Jewish artist was David Bomberg, who, who was at work well before the First World War, creating uh, actually some of the more, more important modernist paintings in Europe. Bomberg, as, as much as ethnicity, I think it's possibly Bomberg who ties several of these people together. Auerbach and Kossoff both went to the immensely obscure evening classes that Bomberg, who by then had fallen completely from fashion, gave in Borough Polytechnic in South London in the 40s and 50s. Bomberg had a great effect, possibly as much as, as a personality in the same way that Bacon did by setting very high standards and giving a sense of how very important painting was. He had an effect on Auerbach and on Kossoff, but also on uh, artists who weren't Jewish. Uh, Dennis Crefield says in my book, he gave him the strong feeling that there was nothing more important that a human being could do than be a painter. And uh, Crefield says that he had, that Bomberg had this tremendous charge of Jewish seriousness about him, and he felt it, although he, in fact, is an English Catholic. We're talking a lot about men. There's an illustration in the book of Rodrigo Moynihan's portrait group of the RCA's painting staff in 1951, all men. Uh, yes. Roger Hilton said that Gillian Ayres couldn't be a painter because she didn't have a penis. I think you certainly needed, if you're a woman, to be quite determined to become a, a painter in those days. Gillian Ayres and Bridget Riley and quite a lot of other people managed it in the, in the period I'm writing about, and they are, they're all, were all very strong personalities. Gillian told me that uh, she from time to time would be advised that she couldn't, even in the best possible world, get a job as a painting teacher in an art school. She'd have to teach something like needlework or you know, some sort of more decorative uh, um, discipline. But she said, she, she, I just got very ratty when people were like that. Yes, she remembered, she didn't forget that rude remark by Roger Hilton, who was famously rude a lot of the time. However, I think she also spent a lot of time listening to Roger Hilton, who was rather inspiring and, and helpful to her. Overall, I think by the, the 50s, the 60s, more and more women were going to art school and more and more women artists, important women artists, were appearing so that there are significant numbers 
not perhaps in the mid-40s, but by the 60s, definitely Paul Arago, Bridget Riley, a lot of people had appeared and were stars. If I can quote you back at yourself, every modern painter has a relationship of some sort with photography. How big an impact does the camera have on this story. Everyone has a different relationship. I mean, Lucian Freud's, for example, was that he, he, I don't think anybody in the 20th century had his photograph taken by more famous photographers, you know, Brassais, uh, Cartier-Bresson, uh, John Deacon, all of them. It's just amazing. But Lucian himself virtually never used photography in his work at all. He somehow managed to just cut that out. So he, he's, he's a, a one extreme. Francis Bacon prefer to paint from from photographs than from living models but his work isn't exactly photographic other people pop artists would take a photo uh, uh, such as peter blake would take a photographic image and work from that although turn it into something else there are all kinds of different things you can do with photographs and i think they're all likely to be ways which get you around the problem of just copying the photograph. Painting and photography had a very complicated uh, relationship, which is not necessarily a hostile one. Going back at least to 1839, when photography uh, was uh, developed, and in a way, uh, uh, the uh, filmless camera, the camera obscura, was having an effect, I believe, long before that. People were saying the painting is, is dead, it's been killed by photography. That's obviously not true because actually a great deal of the, of the painting we're most interested in, which has happened historically, happened since 1839. But I think there was a strong impetus to do something with paint which a photography couldn't do. And I think that's what Bacon was, was getting at. And what he was suggesting is that there, there should be ways of getting all the impressions, the sort of physical sense of somebody's uh, vitality, their personality, the way they move, all those things that the camera has trouble picking up, you should be able to do that somehow in paint. How big a part does America have to play in this narrative? American painting becomes an important force in British art, in fact European world art, in the 1950s. In the 1940s, very few people in Europe either ever went to America or, or knew with much detail what was going on there. So the very earliest stages of abstract expressionism when Jackson Pollock was just beginning were known to very few. But by the time in the mid-50s that huge canvases by Pollock and Rothko and co. were starting to appear in London, it was having, in one way or another, a big impact on a lot of painters. Certainly those who tried, like Julian Ayres, to produce action paintings, as they were then called, uh, very directly. Uh, other people in a more complicated way, Francis Bacon was disappointed, tended to be disdainful of abstract painting, as he, he was of so many things. He called Jackson Pollock the lace maker. Once, when he was introduced for some reason to uh, Jackson Pollock's nephew, he, he responded, You're the lace maker's niece. <laughs> Frank Auerbach says in the book that the abstract expressionist movement, Pollock, Rothko, de Kooning, was, was one of the major turning points in 20th century art. And he admired what they were doing enormously. And I think you can see that in Frank's work. That was one aspect of America, or the influence of America in Britain. The other was as a sort of mirage, the land of cocaine. Nobody 
in the 50s much was going to America, but everyone was seeing it on the cinema screen, reading about it in magazines, seeing it in, in advertisements as an image of prosperity, a glamorous, very much more prosperous life than anyone was having in post-war Britain, or almost anyone, or almost anyone in post-war or Europe. So it became a sort of wonderland, in fact, uh, an unreal image of which those who got to America didn't, really, didn't entirely find. But it's that sort of process of imagining America which seems to have given rise to the very beginnings of pop art, which strangely uh, first seems to have been mooted amongst a group of artists and intellectuals meeting in a back room in, in the West End of London in the basement of the Institute of Contemporary Arts in the early 50s. So it, uh, or certainly the term pop art and to an extent the idea of it isn't American as you might imagine. It didn't, it didn't arrive with Warhol and so on. It was actually thought up by eggheads <laughs> <laughs> on Dover Street. Bacon's three studies of Lucian Freud sold for $146.4 million in 2013. Is it it a matter of concern that the art market is so overheated that that some of the artists that you've written about can sell for hundreds of millions of dollars? I don't know if concern is uh, is the right word. Uh, Lucien would certainly have been wryly amused because uh, he took the view, as I do actually as well, of Bacon's regular subjects, including George Dyer, his lover, and uh, Henrietta Marais, and uh, Soho people, Isabella Rawlston. Lucien thought the pictures he did of him were the least successful by and large. He somehow didn't quite catch... Lucian, it's the pictures get his restlessness, but not much else about him. And the, the really great masterpiece which came out of that relationship was uh, Lucian's first picture of Bacon, which was unfortunately stolen from an exhibition in Berlin in the 1980s and has never been recovered. Bacon's success is very interesting as in market terms. I, Lucian, had he lived to see that uh, auction, would have found it quite amusing. He was rightly amused about his own prices. I remember when he, he bought a constable to put on his living room wall in uh, 2009 and he was saying, well, it's very rather cheap mine. Things have got so expensive. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it would have been a matter of irony for him because he would have remembered very well that all the way, all through his 40s and 50s, he was painting these pictures which are now worth perhaps tens of millions of pounds and nobody wanted to buy them at all and they would just hang around in the racks at Marlborough Fine Art. And he, he spent a lot of his life being out of fashion and producing unsaleable work. Market prices are just numbers, but the very high price, prices of Bacon, Freud and some other artists now are in a general way an indication that globally works of art made in London now count. So in a very general way it's an indication of how London which used not to be considered to be a place which art came from, that would have been the international point of view in 1945, uh, how, how that view of London has changed. Is it a matter for great regret that Francis Bacon or his lover destroyed a significant number of works 
I asked Lucien Freud actually once whether he regretted, because he saw some of these things before they were destroyed, and he said there were one or two, a few that he'd like to see again. Uh, Bacon didn't always get it right. I, I think from descriptions of Bacon at work, he probably tended to repeat the same image or roughly work around a, a theme and do it again and again and again, and then it would work. So he was probably selecting quite sharply. It's not clear that uh, lots of Bacon masterpieces have been lost or destroyed by him or his uh, or in violent quarrels with his lover. It's, it's possible. I, I think the um, sharp editing Bacon did is probably, on the other hand, one of the reasons why his reputation is high. That's certainly what he believed, and that's what Lucien believed. And Lucien himself destroyed maybe a third of his work, according to his assistant, David Dawson. So he, he picked up the habit from, from uh, Bacon of if a picture wasn't up to snuff, then if he put his boot through it or it was burned or something, it was destroyed. The greater half of Freud's career was still to come when you cut off at the end of this book and you know there's a great deal of, uh, for example, Hockney still to come. Yes. Why did you decide that this was the appropriate moment to end the story around about the dawn of the 1970s? Well, uh, it's true that 1970 isn't as clear a turning point as the end of the war, 1945. That's the that's one of the few lines drawn across history when there was, was a great sense of a fresh start. But I felt that around 1970, the first chapter of this story was concluding. Painting was going out of fashion, as it intermittently does. It was right out of fashion in the mid-70s, and installation and what's called conceptual art, performance art, land art, all sorts of new media were the rage. Lucian Freud's dealer told me that uh, all anybody seemed to want was kinetic art. The early 70s were a low watermark, and in the mid-70s then a new chapter begins, and a lot, a lot of these people started to return to fashion, and their painting returned to favour. And so that, that, seemed, that seemed to be a natural point to pause, and 25 years seemed to be about the amount that I could deal with in, a, in the span of a book. Modernists and Mavericks is available from thamesandhudson.com. Martin Gayford, thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Mm-hmm.